Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by the bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruchamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. God, you are so good. You are so compassionate. Filled with loving kindness. Overflowing with grace and mercy. You are faithful, Lord. And we praise Your name for the wonder of Your nature, the consistency of Your character that is unfortunately at times so unlike ours. And we bow to You this morning as we open this book. And I just ask, Lord, as we study through Hosea, Over the next few days, weeks, Lord, as You will, that we will take this ancient prophecy very personally. Lord, may we not just look back 2,700 years. May we instead look at You right now. I pray, Father, miraculously, supernaturally, that Your Holy Spirit will draw people into faith in Jesus and forgiveness in Jesus and compassion in Jesus before this is all said and done. And this morning we pray Your Spirit be our Rabbi. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, after nine months of intensive shuttle diplomacy by U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, the latest push in the Israeli-Palestinian peace effort has collapsed. Some say it came to a screeching halt. Others say it was dead on arrival. John Kerry blames Israel for its unwillingness to release more Palestinian prisoners. 
many of them terrorists. He also blames the Palestinian Authority for seeking unilateral recognition from certain international organizations, which they said they would not do, and yet they did. Add to that the Palestinian Authority's continued refusal to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. And their recent merger, if you've heard about this, with Hamas in the Gaza Strip, Hamas, a known terrorist organization, now there is a merger of Fatah and the Palestinian Authority back together with Hamas, the terrorists. According to the New York Times just this last week, the uh, chief Palestinian uh, Authority negotiator, a man by the name of Saeed Arakat, took the U.S. Special Peace Envoy, Martin Indyk, on a visit last December to see some ruins. Some ruins just north of Jericho, there in the land of Samaria. The ruins are the ruins of Hisham, which is the most important archaeological site for the Palestinians in the entire region, Hisham. It was last inhabited around 1000 A.D., and Arakat said, I took Martin to the ruins to show him nothing lasts, and life goes on. These were great empires. They're gone. I know that the Israeli occupation will go. I know. Arakat apparently has not read the book of Hosea. He certainly hasn't read or at least brushed up on his Mark Twain. Mark Twain, who back in 1899 wrote the following, The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other people have sprung up, held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he has always been, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. And Twain writes, what is the secret of his immortality? You know what the secret is. You see, God, when He makes a promise, is faithful to that promise. God, when He calls a people, is faithful to that people. Saib Arakat has not read Mark Twain. And again, he has certainly not read the book of Hosea. This is a minor prophet with a major message. Now this morning we head into the Minor Prophets. This is the last section of the Old Testament for us. Twelve books. In fact, these books are called the Twelve. It's not the last section in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's actually the last of the middle section. The section is called the Nevi'im, which means the Prophets. But this, altogether, these Twelve Prophets make up the last book of the Nevi'im in the Hebrew Bible. It's been said, good things come in small packages. And this is absolutely true. So we come to the minor prophets. Minor only as compared in length to some of the other prophets. Isaiah, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're small in size, shorter books. One or two of these are only one or two chapters. 
We'll be throwing before you know it. We're going to hit Obadiah and be gone. And you're going to like say, did we study Obadiah? It's one chapter. And so the message is brief. It's quick. It's to the point. Not as long as some of the previous prophets we've studied. And yet, so important. So for the next however long the Lord desires, we're going to major in the minors. We're going to focus on these minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and finally Malachi. And we will finish the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's only taken us, what, Barb, 11 years? 12? Something like that? So I think we're really blazing a trail here. Minor prophets, but no less significant. From Obadiah which is the first of the minor prophets, written about 830 B.C., all the way down to Malachi, who was written about 430 B.C., across 400 years of prophecy, these minor prophets still speak today. They speak to all of Israel. They speak in marvelous ways of Jesus the Christ. These minor prophets speak about these last days, and they speak to us Personally, and Hosea is no exception of the personal nature of these prophets, of the voice of the Lord spoken across time, of the relevance of God's Word as much today as it was so long ago. Hosea is only referred to one other time in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 9, verse 25. Paul writes, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And so I invite you to get into the personal nature of the prophecy of Hosea. We'll cover some history, we'll look at some of those things, but keep coming back to you and God, you and Jesus, and what God might be saying to you. Hosea's name comes from the root Yeshua. Jesus. Yeshua meaning salvation in Hebrew. So Hosea means salvation. That's the idea behind the prophet, behind the name. And the theme of the book of Hosea is restoration even in rebellion. If you want insight into the heart of God, this is the book. If you want to really understand what God's thinking, what's on His mind, what makes Him tick, you're going to hear it. The book of Hosea you can divide into two parts. First three chapters, which speak of the adulterous wife and the faithful husband. An actual story that takes place. And then chapters 4 through 14, applying that, speak of the adulterous nation and the faithful God. John Corson says it begins with Hosea's uh, home, home life and it moves to Hosea's homeland. And so that's the idea behind the book of Hosea. Back in verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that is Judah in the south, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, that's Jeroboam the second, up in the north. So Hosea lived and wrote this book, we know for certain, from 760 to 714 B.C. That's the time frame we're looking at. And I'm going to give you the time frame every time we hit a new minor prophet, because they're not in chronological order. As I said, Obadiah comes back around 830 or 840 B.C. 
So just pay attention to that because we kind of jump around. Now that we've gone through so much, we've covered history, we've covered the Torah, we've covered the major prophets, and now the minor prophets are all kind of put together in this one book and jump around through that time of Israel being in the land even after they're uh, not in the land and once they've returned. The historical background of the book of Hosea is in 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 32. And that's where we can go and see what was happening with the kings and the time in which Hosea was writing. These are the days of the divided kingdom. Democrats in the south, no, uh, in the north, we have the kingdom of Israel. The, the ten northern tribes split off. In the south, Judah and Benjamin make up the southern kingdom of Judah. Now Hosea's ministry is primarily to Israel, that is primarily to the north, although the Lord speaks to all of the Jewish people, north and south, Israel and Judah. Now up in northern Israel at the time, Jeroboam, Jeroboam II is king. He reigns for 41 years. During the reign of Jeroboam, and I am going to do my best not to make modern day uh, application or at least allusions with this, but it's so tough to do. Because when Jeroboam was king, on the surface, Israel was doing quite well. Politically and economically, Israel was strong as a kingdom. Underneath... There was serious rot and decay because spiritually and morally things were corrupt. I'll let you think about where we've been and where we are. Because I can look back, okay, I've got to go this far at least, without naming names, I can look back 10, 20, 30 years and I can see a country strong on the surface. Politically, economically, things going well, but there was a moral decay and many of us were watching and saying, this isn't good underneath. Something's not right here. And now I see a country very much in decline politically and economically because we were already in decline morally and spiritually. Talking with some of the guys over the weekend who went down for the Calvary Men's Retreat, which was fantastic. I had several conversations with with gentlemen who think perhaps we've already gone way past the tipping point. When I say the tipping point, there's that pendulum swing of morality. Maybe you've watched it in your life that we've gone kind of a bad direction, but there's always been a tendency to swing back, you know, back to good things, back to morality. I don't know. It seems like we're just kind of continuing to swing further and further away from ever coming back out of this as a country. What's interesting is during the time that Hosea wrote, not only was Jeroboam II the king, but if you look at all the kings listed there who were in the south, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all of their reigns, well, if you parallel that to what was going on in Israel up in the north, six more kings came after Jeroboam who aren't even listed by Hosea. Why not? It's not much worth listing them. You see, Jeroboam the second son, Zechariah, was assassinated. And the northern kingdom began to spin into anarchy. Shalom was the next king. He was assassinated as well. Menachem followed Shalom. He reigned for ten years, handed his throne to his son, Pekahiah, or Pekahiah, and he was overthrown in a coup d'etat by Pekah, who was chewed up by Pekah chewed. (laughs) 
by those around him. He was assassinated. And finally, the last king of Israel, Hoshea, died in Assyrian exile. So from Jeroboam's reign of 41 years of economic soundness and strength and political might, suddenly everything just spun out of control over the next six kings until the northern kingdom went into Assyrian captivity and never came back as a kingdom. Israel, they wanted a king like the nations. They got one. No, we want to look like them. They did. And so they functioned like the nations around them, and they fell just like the nations around them. So Hosea prophesied during this time in the north. At the same time, Jonah was prophesying in the north, but not to Israel. Jonah was prophesying to Nineveh. Those pagan Ninevites. That's a fascinating story. Amos was also prophesying in the north to Israel. Amos is that prophet who said there's there's an absolute famine for the word here. Which is always a symbol that a country or a signal that a, a country is going down when there's a famine for the Word of God. Down in the south, Isaiah was prophesying, along with Micah. And so during this time, God is speaking loud and clear to get the attention of His people. Five different prophets, all prophesying at the same time, all calling the people back to God. He was intentional, He was purposeful in trying to get their attention. Hosea among these is a vivid writer. I I love reading through Hosea because he uses uh, absolutely descriptive similes. He uses the phrase like, like a 24 times, as in like a calf, or like a moth, like a lion, like a morning cloud, like a flaming fire, like a silly dove, like a treacherous bow. And so this descriptive prophet speaking in the north is called, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry. Everybody getting the point? Forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Anybody who wants to be a prophet, you better think twice. Anyone who would say, hey, Lord, use me in ministry, slow up there, good buddy. Check out what perhaps the Lord might be calling you to. I was told when I was 16 years old by a youth pastor, we were talking about ministry, and and I had a calling to ministry, even that, that far back. And I remember him saying, Rick, don't do this unless you can't do anything else. I'm like, what do you mean? Unless I'm lame? No, no. And he repeated it. Don't do it unless you absolutely cannot do anything else. Because the in and the out of ministry, the in and the out especially of prophecy could be so quick. The average tenure... For a pastor these days, 10 months. That's how long pastors last, typically in ministry. God asks things. And of His prophets, if you look back over the history of Israel and what God asked His prophets to do, it's really quite stunning. I remember Jeremiah spent three months with an oxen's yoke on his shoulders walking around. That probably felt great. Isaiah 
was told to walk around for three years dressed, the Bible says naked, but he probably had the undergarment, the thin undergarment that, that was all, kind of all that's left of those who are living in exile as an example to the people of Israel. These guys didn't live easy lives. And so the Lord comes to Hosea and says, I want you to have a messed up marriage. I want you to dive into the dysfunctional. I want you to begin knowing what you're getting into. An unfaithful woman. I want you to think about Gomer a little bit this morning, perhaps from her perspective. What Hosea does for her, by the command of God, is nothing less than stunning. This is a woman that no thinking man, no man in Israel in his right mind would have. This is a woman of harlotry. Now, there are all kinds of views and perspectives about Gomer, and we'll, we'll talk about a few of those. But understand again that from the prophetic perspective, from the biblical perspective, from the Sunday morning teaching perspective, no big deal. We just have a picture of Hosea's home life as a living parable for what was going on in Hosea's homeland. But the reality of this is in so doing, Hosea would give Gomer a place of honor and standing in Israelite society that she could not have gotten otherwise. By marrying her, he legitimizes her. And without that, she would not have been seen as legitimate at all. In addition, he gives her three beautiful children. I mean, man, paint a picture of you and of me. Romans 6.21, Paul said, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Think back to how you were living and, and the things that you were so ashamed of. Compare it to now. Look at yourself now. This young man that Jim mentioned, coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, a changed life, now confident enough to go back to a teacher and say, by the way, I cheated in your class a few years ago. That's remarkable to me. What Jim didn't tell you is he went straight down to the principal's office and and destroyed this kid's transcript. (laughs) You didn't, did you? And why not? Grace. You see, that's the mercy of Jesus. When people are afraid to confess where I've been, what I've done, what if they find out? Hey, when he finds out, which by the way, he already knew, his response is grace, mercy, legitimacy, sanctification. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined or married to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. As Gomer was now married to Hosea, married to salvation, Gomer now begins to have children. She begins to bear fruit for the Lord. Legitimate kids. Kids born of a marriage. Now again, some have a little trouble with this story. They read it. In fact, I've already been asked. Did God violate His own moral laws by asking one of His prophets to marry a prostitute? Well, okay, so to make it work, 
There are those Bible scholars who come along and they say, well, perhaps Gomer became a prostitute after she left Hosea, which happens in chapter 3. Maybe the, the, the harlotry spoken of here was after the fact. He, so God didn't ask him to violate anything. It's, it's Gomer who did the violating. You know, the, the problem is that it denies the plain meaning of the passage. I'm not really sure how you can read verse 2 and see it any other way. Go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Well, now that sounds to me like she's already involved in harlotry. Listen, it also works as an application of what God had already done with Israel. He didn't call Abraham out of monotheism. He called Abraham out of spiritual harlotry. He called Abraham out of polytheism, out of a pagan background, out of many gods, and a household of many different lovers. That is, gods. Out of the harlotry of nations, God called Abraham and said, Now, I want you to belong to me. I want you to be married to me as your only God, as the one true God. My friends, I am convinced that Hosea sanctified the whore. That's the whole point of the message. That is the message that counts here. A life radically gone, sanctified and saved. And so, what he's doing is not only giving the nation an opportunity, he's giving Gomer an opportunity. He's offering grace to this woman for whom no grace should have been given. Because that's the heart of the Father. And we need to understand what God does on an epic global scale, He does on a very personal scale. He is utterly consistent throughout. Whether He's dealing just with you, or He's dealing with America as a nation, or He's dealing with the entire planet, God is a God of grace and compassion and mercy and love and righteousness and judgment. And He's the same through and through. A commentator named Boyce said, if Hosea's story cannot be real because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 By His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Don't miss those three words. By His doing. Not by yours. Not by mine. I didn't even go seeking the marriage. I was wooed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.31 Paul said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Jesus and you. So Hosea does something here for Gomer that she could not do for herself. Hosea has to marry the hooker. And when she's unfaithful to him, and she will be, That's her propensity. He has to go and get her. He has to bring her home. And he has to, by God's command, be faithful to her again, though she has been utterly unfaithful to him. Before we go any further, sadly, we all recognize that marital unfaithfulness is not a new concept. And there are times I have looked over our culture and I've thought about where we've gone as, as a people 
And I look at the church today and I think, wow. The level of adultery and unfaithfulness of divorce that is taking place in the church today, it's heartbreaking to the Lord. And Jesus said, there was one exception, there is one exception to allow for divorce. Matthew 19, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And let's be clear on this, immorality is the Greek word pornea. Sexual immorality. Sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus is not talking about irreconcilable differences. And I don't say this to judge anyone here this morning, but to say the standard of marriage is that you don't divorce for any other reason but sexual misconduct, adultery. And that one reason only when there's no other option because Jesus said, because of the hardness of hearts. That's what the Bible teaches. Now this is coming again from a God of love and grace and mercy who doesn't want people walking around judged and and sorrowful and guilt-ridden and ashamed. The problem is we, we make choices and do things all the time that leave us like Gomer, walking the streets ashamed. But the Lord, the Lord is so remarkable. And I'm getting ahead of, of the whole story because long about chapter 3, though this has happened, though there was unfaithfulness, though she runs out on Him, He brings her home. And that's what the Lord does with each of us. And that's what the Lord has done with you in your life. And I want you to realize that this morning. And I'm talking specifically to Christians this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the background you've had, whatever it might be, unfaithfulness, divorce, adultery, whatever it might be, this morning the Lord says, look, I I brought you back. And I've called you now to faithfulness to me. Be faithful to me. Why should I? Because I am faithful to you. And you can rest in that and know that His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy is real. But we have to understand and recognize the pain that comes of these things. I I can't imagine a deeper wound than marital unfaithfulness. When I think about the intimacies that my wife and I share, and I mean spiritually and emotionally, I mean in dealing with life, in dealing with our children, the things that we've talked about, to have that betrayed, I I, I don't know, for those of you who have gone through it, I, I can't imagine. And the only healing that could possibly come is by the blood of Christ. The amazing compassion and mercy and grace of Jesus who says, I know that hurts. And you know what? No one knows better than Him. So for anyone who has that wound, that kind of pain, if you've ever known the betrayal of infidelity, actually listen to it, put it this way, you've only experienced a hint of what God has experienced across time. You only have a a, a taste of what God has gone through in dealing with every single one of us. And so don't allow... This study in the minor prophet Hosea to be impersonal because it is not impersonal. I'm not sure it gets much more personal than what God is going to say to you and to me in this book.
Well, Gomer's legitimized in marriage and she gets pregnant. And by the way, the, the, the phrase children of harlotry could mean, in verse 2, have children of harlotry, that Gomer, even while married to Hosea, is messing around on the side. That may very well be going on. Verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So child number one, Jezreel. Jezreel. The Jezreel Valley. In Israel today is a fertile and fruitful valley. It is a beautiful place. Two, uh, two Israel trips ago, we stood up on Tel Jezreel. And we looked out across the Jezreel Valley. Absolutely stunning vista. Beautiful view. The name Jezreel means God sows. God sows. This is the valley in which God has sown good things and fruitful things. And the name Jezreel, interesting, while Hosea was prophesying, as I said, so was Isaiah. And Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, Let me sing now for my well-beloved song, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce grapes, but it produced stinkberries. That's the Hebrew word. Your Bible may say worthless ones. It's not worthless ones, it's stinkberries. It's a fruit you would not want to eat. It's a rotten fruit. God sows into Abraham, sows into Isaac, sows into Jacob. He sows into His people. And He calls them to produce a good fruit. And what they produce stinks. The name Jezreel also can be translated scatters. Because as a farmer sows the seeds, he scatters the seed Across the ground, God scatters Jezreel. God sows Jezreel. God scatters. And so the prophetic namesake of Hosea's firstborn is going to be fulfilled in the Jezreel Valley when God will scatter Israel. He's going to wipe them out. When the Assyrians finally smash northern Israel in 722 B.C., guess where the final battle takes place? The Jezreel Valley. And God right there, as Hosea's firstborn is named, God now is going to scatter Israel into the world. There's a ton of biblical significance here. The Jezreel Valley. Back in 1 Kings chapter 21, we hear about a man by the name of Naboth. Or Naboth. Naboth had a vineyard there. A beautiful vineyard. It was his inheritance. And when you have an inheritance in Israel, you don't just give it up. That's your family's. Well, somebody saw that vineyard and went, Ah, it's a beautiful vineyard. I'd love to get my hands on that. A king by the name of Ahab. Ahab wanted it. Naboth wasn't selling. Ahab lays down on his couch and wise and cries like a baby. I can't have that vineyard. He had everything else. He's the king. But he wanted that vineyard. And his wife, Jezebel, concocted a plan. You can just see the picture. It reminds me of the king and the queen in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. 
You ever seen those two? Oh, you just want everything and she's trying to be... You know, and he's trying to kill her the whole time. It's that kind of relationship. <laughs> Ahab and Jezebel. So Jezebel concocts a plan to have this innocent man, Nabot, to have him falsely accused and stoned to death. And once it all takes place, then she says, go take the vineyard for yourself. And Ahab does. God's not happy about that. God sends along Elisha, the prophet, in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 21, saying, Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. Fast forward from there to 2 Kings chapter 9. And we get a story about a king that's hard to understand, really. Because this guy at first is called by God to do a work, but he does that work and then he goes way overboard. Way beyond anything God called him to do. The king's name was Jehu. And the judgment of Jehu that Hosea mentions here, that the Lord says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. Now we get down to what was that all about? 2 Kings chapter 9. Elisha comes to Jehu and he anoints him to be king of Israel. Jehu goes about the slaughter of the house of Ahab. Kills them all. Seventy sons of Ahab were slaughtered by Jehu. Their seventy heads piled up in the Jezreel Valley. He just... This guy was bloodthirsty. Jehu also goes in and he slaughters the house of Baal. Gathering all the Baal worshippers, falsely telling them that he himself loves Baal as well, and gathers them all to a feast in this huge temple of Baal, and then he sets his men up on the outside, and they don't allow a single person to come out. They set fire to the place, burn them down, they kill everybody who runs out. It's a massive slaughter at the hand of Jehu. He eradicates Baal worship in Israel. All right! No, not all right. Because he obviously has no problem with golden calf worship because he maintains that. He just gives up one set of idolatry for another. And Jehu just kept on slaughtering and slaughtering. And Jeroboam II was the last king in the dynasty that began with Jehu. So the Lord says, coming down to the end of this dynasty, of, uh, of Jehu's dynasty, down to the end of it, I'm going to do what I swore I would do when Jehu went off the deep end. Hosea's first four in Jezreel indicates, again, the scattering of Israel in the valley of his namesake. By the way, you Bible students know the Jezreel Valley has another name. The Valley of Megiddo. This is where Har-Megeddon happens. Har meaning Mount, Mount Megiddo, overlooking that huge valley in Israel, the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo. Revelation 16, verse 16, tells us they gathered them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. Revelation 14, verse 19, describes what will happen in that place. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles, which is the distance, by the way, of the Valley of Megiddo all the way down to the southernmost tip in Basra. The Jezreel Valley. Judgment in that valley. God sows. God scatters. Child number two. 
Lo Ruchama or Lo Ruchama. Child number two, verse six. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo Ruchama. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Lo Ruchama means no mercy. We use that in sports. Show no mercy! You don't want to hear that from God. No mercy! And there wouldn't be. Not for the northern kingdom. The Assyrian captivity, we know historically, was absolutely devastating. It was brutal. It was horrific. There was no mercy for the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah, however, would be spared the wrath of Assyria. And you may remember the story, but in a marvelous way. Notice how specific the prophecy is. Verse 7 going on, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah. And I will deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not, note this, will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. You're going to get delivered, but it's going to be rather unconventional. During this time, after northern Israel was wiped out, 722 B.C., Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his forces down. They began to pillage and, and, and plunder their way through the land of Judah. They arrive at Jerusalem. They have Jerusalem surrounded. They have it under siege. King Hezekiah is king at that time. And Isaiah comes to him, and the two men, the prophet and the king, they pray to the Lord. Hezekiah goes into the temple. He takes a threatening letter from Sennacherib. He rolls it out before the Lord, and he prays over, and he says, Lord, don't let this happen to us. And God says, I got you covered. It's my translation. And the Bible tells us, one of my favorite verses, 2 Kings 19, verse 35, that it happened that that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. (laughs) That is an interesting way to wake up. To wake up dead. What it means, obviously, is the 185,000 Assyrians are wiped out, and those in Jerusalem woke up, went and looked over the wall, and saw nothing but carnage. Dead Assyrians. And what did God say through Hosea? I'm going to do it without sword, bow, battle horses, or horsemen. You guys aren't going to have to fight. I got this one covered. Child number three, Loami. Loami, verse 8. When she had weaned Lo Ruchamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And that's what Loami means. It means not my people. Ami, my people. Lo, not. Not my people. And by the way, the name Loami is strong evidence that Gomer was already unfaithful and that Loami was not even Hosea's son. Bottom line. Every single call to these three kids, whether they're out playing in the yard or down the street, every call to come home at dinner time, every call to come inside and wash up, every call for any who and, and all who heard their names they would be reminded, God will scatter without mercy for you who are not my people. Jezreel, Lo Ruchamah, Lo Ami. God will scatter without mercy you who are not my people.
people. But listen, whose choice was that? It was Israel's choice. This is not God unfairly judging, as you know He doesn't do. But as the world sometimes blames God of unfair, unjust judgment, how could He do that? He gives everybody the choice. He gave Israel years, decades, centuries of opportunity. The prophets coming and speaking the word of truth to them that they might turn around and be saved. It wasn't God's rejection that was the problem. It was the people's rebellion. Gang, what God rejects is pretense. He, he's never been one for keeping up appearances. You know, God doesn't go around acting marriage and name only. Honey, put on our good face because we've got to go to church and, and make people think that we've got a better marriage than we really have. God is not into that. God doesn't play those games. And I think I can say with assurance, God can't stand superficial religion. Oh, they look righteous, but we all know what's really going on. That's not the kind of God He is. God calls it as He sees it. Because until we call it as we see it, we cannot be redeemed from it. Until we understand what the sin is, until we acknowledge that rebellion, we're not going to turn to the Lord to be healed. Until we know what the sickness is, we don't know how to apply the blood of Christ. God is not a game player. I've said this over and over and over, but it keeps coming back to me. He just doesn't mess around. I was thinking about the guys down there, again, this weekend at the, at the men's retreat. And we're sitting there singing songs, and I'm, I'm looking around the room. These are men, right? Singing songs. I get women singing songs. But men. And I was just singing. And the worship was great. And these voices were lifting praise and there were guys with their hands raised. And I remember at one one moment I thought, you know, the world looks at this and thinks it's just silly game playing. It's not. This is real, gang. It's not church that we do to kind of get away. This is not going to the movies on a Friday night for fantasy. This is reality. And God doesn't mess with stuff. It's not reality. By the way, that's why I spent some time talking about adultery earlier. Not to make people uncomfortable. Not to make you squirm in your seat. Man, we call it what it is. Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And if I allow Paul that position, i got to sidle up real close. Because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is none who are better. And those who have had a lasting marriage for 50, 60 years, God bless you, and He has, but it doesn't make you better than someone who's gone through three or four marriages. We're all sinners. The Hebrew Bible stops chapter 1 at the end of verse 9. So I have in my Bible, I drew a line right underneath that so I could kind of see it graphically. This is where it ends in the Tanakh and then chapter 2 picks up from there. What's wonderful is it's not the end of the story. It would be sad if it was to end up verse 9, You are not my people and I am not your God. And there are those, by the way, today who think that when God said that to Israel, that was it. They're out. You gotta find someone else to take their place because they're no good. And so he found you and he found me. 
And he founded the church. And we all know the church is made up of much more holy people than Israel ever was. (laughs) The faithfulness of God cannot be spoiled even by the faithlessness of man. That's the one thing my faithlessness can't do is mess up His ability to remain faithful. And we see that here. And we see it in a seemingly insignificant little conjunction, what you might call a minor prophetic word. A tiny little word from this minor prophet, and it begins verse 10, and the word in the Hebrew is va. Yet. Va. I love that word. This tiny little conjunction. We see it in other places in the Scripture. Psalm 66, verse 12. You made men right over our heads. We went through the fire and through water. Va! Yet, you brought us out into a place of abundance. Isaiah 40, verse 30. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Joel chapter 2 verse 11, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Or Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Good things do come in small packages. Yet. Yet is what I would call the conjunction of grace. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. Where is, uh, where is God referring to? What's He talking about here? The sand of the seashore, does that remind anybody of anything? This goes all the way back to His promise to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. A promise unforgotten. The number of Israel, note that, the number of the sons of Israel, not Judah, Israel, will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. He goes on, he says... And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Where is that place? The Jezreel Valley. Running through and down and into Samaria, Judea, the West Bank, politically today. And God says in that place where they say, you are not my people, it will be said of them, There's my people. They are my people. Verse 11, And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel, the day of, you could say, God's sowing. Once again, God says, I'm going to sow. 
I'm going to sow into this land. And you know, we've been watching it take place since 1948. Even before that, even before the declaration of Israel's independence as a nation, we started to see in the late 1800s, God is sowing into the land. He's bringing His people back. He's restoring Israel into that place where they will be called His people again. He's planting them on fertile soil, the soil of the Jezreel. Megiddo, by the way, Megiddo for you and for me right now is a a word, a name for the whole world that signifies judgment. You say, Armageddon, what do you think? Destruction! Judgment! Horror! In the Millennial Kingdom, gang, Megiddo will no longer mean judgment. It's going to mean restoration. It's going to be a beautiful name. I I can imagine walking the valley of Megiddo and saying, look at the fruit, look at the beauty, look at what God has done with His people. Because though they were absolutely adulterous, He was faithful. He continued to be faithful even in their adultery. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says also, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers and they shall possess it. And I'll tell you what, gang, once the people of Israel are sown back into the land, they will never, ever again be uprooted and scattered. That's the wonder of what we see going on right now. You can't reverse this thing. It is not going backwards. Saib Arakat is wrong. Israel will not go. It may get dicey. It may look a little tight. We may see armies amassed on all the borders. But according to this word, once God regathers His people, He's not going to send them out again. Even a people who have yet to understand and recognize the love of their, of their husband. Who, by the way, is the one appointed leader that they will appoint for themselves? It's none other than Jesus Christ. John 10, verse 16, he says, They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. And it's all because God said, Yet. It's all because of that tiny little conjunction of grace. That though I have sold myself into the harlotry of humanity, yet His grace is sufficient for me. There was another adulterous woman. Several actually in the Scriptures. But one you all may recall who was caught in the act. Thrown on the ground before Jesus to be judged by the falsely religious stuffed shirts. (laughs) Remember what Jesus said to her? After inviting all of her accusers who were sinless to start throwing stones. I want every righteous one of you to start chucking rocks at her right now. Everyone who's never sinned, and from oldest to youngest, they all depart and go away. Until it's just Jesus and the woman. And after they all went away, John 8.10, He said, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. And from now on, sin no more. God's desire is not condemnation. It's restoration. At the end of Romans chapter 7, let me just read this to you, verse 24, Paul cries out, he, I mean, you can, you can feel the pain, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this, the body of this death? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered that? How can I make this right? How can I get out of this mess that I've made? How can I clean this up? It's never going to be alright. And then Paul says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, therefore, it's another conjunction of grace. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And man, that's Gomer's story, as we'll see. That's Israel's story. And that's our story. We're all a bunch of Gomers. <laughs> kind of takes on a different meaning. I have friends in high school, we called each other that because of the old show Gomer Pile, right? You're such a Gomer, man. You know? I am. You are. By the way, Gomer's name means... To complete. To finish. And we will never be complete until we are truly married to the One who loves us most. Last verse, Isaiah 62, verse 4, It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, My delight is in her. And your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you.